Do you ever find yourself confused when it comes to health and fitness? Have you been searching relentlessly on the most effective ways to achieve your fitness-related goals, only to find yourself even more frustrated? Well, we've got you covered. It's time to learn from the best, shorten your learning curve, and truly understand how to achieve your goals without spinning your wheels and wasting precious time. Welcome to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast. Welcome back to the Minimum Effective Dose podcast. We are so excited to bring you guest today. His name is Antonio Squilante, and he is a registered certified strength and conditioning coach with over a decade of experience. He's worked with high school and collegiate athletes that have competed at the national and international level. He graduated summa cum laude with a bachelor's degree in physical education from the University of Rome. He's earned a master's of science in sports performance and orthopedic rehab from A.T. Still University a master's degree in biokinesiology from the University of Southern California. He's also a PhD student. He's conducting research at the Clinical Exercise Research Center, Department of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California, Los Angeles. He's authored several books and textbooks on strength training, sports performance, and also translated some classics readings in exercise physiology. He's a, res he's a registered sport and exercise nutrition nutritionist and a lead NSCA instructor. Wow, that's a mouthful. And uh, which, which just goes to show he's wicked smart, as they would say in Boston. So guys, <laughs> we're going to dive right in. And as you can tell, uh, Antonio has a ton of expertise in various fields. And uh, we're really excited to, to learn more about what he does day in and day out. We're going to dive into his background, some experience. We're going to talk about research, and I'm going to get much better at pronouncing all of the things that I just screwed up. So Antonio, <laughs> it's good to have you here, buddy. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank you so much. So yeah. I, I won't be offended by the fact that I got left out of the uh, intro uh, because Mike was so excited to, to get to our guest, uh, but I am, uh, I'm thrilled to have this opportunity today. Uh, Antonio is... Uh, a uh, friend of uh, Fabio Zonin's um, uh, has been involved in the Strong First community for a little while here and um, is just, as uh, Mike said, wicked smart and uh, ready to educate us a little bit today on um, all things research and uh, make everybody a little bit better at, uh, at doing that. Uh, you know, when we sent you the invite and we, we looked at the podcast, we, uh, we kind of threw out uh, three questions or, or things to hopefully try to keep us within the guardrails. Mike and I are not good with that. We're not good with guardrails. We tend to go all over the place. Uh, but, you know, the first question was like the three biggest misperceptions or misinterpretations. And that is a big task to narrow down the misperceptions and misinterpretations of research into three, uh, three biggest uh, misperceptions is a big task. Where, where'd you go with that, Antonio? Well, I'll try to keep it on task. So um, <laughs> let's start by saying that I'll speak from my personal experience. So 99.9% uh, .9 of what I do is based on uh, strength training and strength training for sport. So I don't pretend to know anything about like nutrition or rehabilitation or physical therapy or anything like that, uh, at least for my topic. Um, when it comes to uh, misconceptions or like, I don't even want to call them errors or mistakes. It's more like point of views. I think um, 
a lot of what we do in research when it comes to let's take a step back just for a second when we do research on strength training for sport what we do we study it for the most part at least that's what i do we study like a program design like an actual program which we often refer to as a training intervention just to sound smarter but it's a program and we do that over a long period of time uh, long for research in research terms which is six to eight weeks ideally you would like to do much longer than that and then you look at the effect of that training intervention so on a, on a smaller scale you're doing some progressive over progressive overloading and you're doing some sort of periodized resistance training uh, now i think just by looking at that one of the problems with studies on uh, strengthening for sport or periodization is the concept and the notion of periodization itself and i don't want to upset anyone because everyone is, is on theories and methodology so i'm just talking about my personal experience um a lot of what is done in the scientific community and especially in situations where people have educated themselves well have read enough to know periodization but they've never really actually tried it and tried it for long enough to see how that works uh, they tend to assume and take for granted all the classical models of periodization we were taught in school and i'm referring to whether you look at linear periodization non-linear periodization whatever system you're looking at um behind the scenes you're looking at physiological adaptation based on the so-called general adaptation syndrome so you create a stressor you look at the adaptation and you push the boundaries of that stressor to the limit of what that person can do before bringing them into exhaustion and you hope to get a result out of it um the old notion of physiological adaptation as has been questioned has been challenged over time and some people still make the claim that Medvedev's original model was based on general adaptation syndrome, and it wasn't. Uh, adaptation is much more of a complex process, and what comes with it is something that researchers don't really like much, which is confounding variables and background noise. Uh, it's very difficult to isolate one thing that can create an outcome that is easily measurable and quantifiable in research. And that tends to bring people to a far extreme where they create very um, rigid interventions, very lab type of interventions that might be great to give you an outcome. And they might make your life easier when you go and you measure your input, you have your output, and you figured out if there's a correlation or not. But because a lot of these people, and I say that we know healing time is just an observation, a lot of these people never really coach for long enough to know what is doable, what is not. They create training interventions and studies that don't really make much sense. And they're not applicable in real life and they don't really transfer to what we do on day-to-day -day basis. And that opens the door to a lot of misconceptions where people make claims and they go back to research and they use research, they use research to support their claims, but they don't go far enough to see that that research to begin with is not that applicable on what we do on a daily basis and don't get me wrong there's a lot of good research out there a lot of good information that can still be used if you put the right lenses on and you look at papers in the right way you look at the methods you look at the populations and a bunch of other other factors but there should be much more to it and allow me to say a lot of a lot of times like sci scientists or researchers 
um, make this huge fuss about like, oh, we just need to look at like recent studies and recent recent evidence because the statistics is better, the data collection is done better and all that good stuff. And they forget about studies that were done like 30, 40, 50 years ago, pretending they were just trash because they're old studies. Well, if you go back to look at those studies and you first look at the length of those studies, those were done over months and months of length of data collection. So much more much more um, detail in their, in their method and their outcome. They were done on elite level athletes. So the best of the best, something where we can learn a valuable lesson from and scale it down to the general population. And there were probably simple or simplistic at least because the technology was limited, but they had a clear um, condition that they were studying and a clear outcome that they wanted to measure. And they were providing information on how to go about changing the way you train athletes to get better outcomes. And I think, I'm thinking about like studies from um, Verkozhansky, Komi, Akinen, uh, Bosco, Viru, like all the big names in our industry who have paid the way for our field today, like without their um, contribution to science, we wouldn't be where we are now. So um, that's probably one of the major misconceptions when it comes to research. And I hope I kept my answer somewhere on task and on point. Well, 100%. But I think it's useful because um, I know that in, in speaking with Pavel and, and uh, certainly referencing a uh, certain a lot of research by Matt, and I'm going to butcher uh, several Russian names at the moment with uh, <laughs> Verkashansky, Medvyev, uh, Zasiorsky, and, and then Pavel has a list of you know a hundred others. Um, they, to your point, they were doing research where they manipulated a variable or had a training intervention, and then they knew what that looked like over an Olympic training cycle or multiple Olympic training cycles. And so they weren't university controlled studies. Uh, and I'm just totally blanking on the name of the type of research that I want to pull out of the hat right now. But uh, the, it's to your point, it's research that today tends to be a little bit poo-pooed because it, it isn't that university double blind sort of uh, controlled research, which not a lot of that is even uh, to the quality you're talking about. So I think, I think it's interesting to kind of to take that peek behind the curtain there and look at uh, uh, the different types of research and um, you know, how those, how that data was collected. Yeah. yeah and Oh, go ahead. So very quick, because uh, that was a very good point. And it's not to be uh, picky or fancy and say like doing research on elite level athletes is better just because they're elite level athletes. There's a degree of variability in the response to a training process that has much more to do with motor learning and motor control that has to do with actual physical development. And if you want to make sure that you're studying or comparing subjects of a similar level of skill, and that skill is somewhat up to game and for what you're studying, studying elite level athletes, it is better when you're looking at training intervention or strength, power, endurance. It's like, I always do the analogy. If you want to study aerodynamics, which is something extremely complicated, you would probably study on an F1 car that goes at 300 kilometers per hour rather than study that on a car that goes at 20 kilometers per hour because you can really expose that subject 
to the uttermost level of like intervention in terms of intensity, volume, frequency, and see what kind of response you have. Uh, doing the same things on subjects that are like recreational athletes or uh, resistant trained subjects, as you see in papers, is not going to give you the same understanding because there are other factors that you can't count for. There's learning, motor learning, there's um, just intangible things as just motivation, drive, and a bunch of other things that come into play and they're going to affect your performance outcome. So if you can't count for those, your results are not going to be that complete to some extent. Yeah. So, so a couple things right away, I'm already scratching notes and I'm, I've got a ton of questions for you. So it, you know, one of the things that I think people often misunderstand is, is the fact that we are dealing with human beings. We aren't dealing with a mathematical equation where one plus one equals two. We are dealing with individuals in scenarios that are multifactorial. And, and there's so many instances where so many things will impact what's going on. And that is the art and science of training because there are so many different variables. There's sleep, there's hydration, there's nutrition, there's uh, prior training experience. There's so many things. So when people are looking for the one word answer on research, that's where you really say it depends. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that we can do in research that you do is we start to look at trends, right? It's not about what is the exact answer is if we can do all of these research studies and they point everybody in a similar direction, the trends are going to give us insight on what's working and what is potentially not working. And it'd be perfect if we could have these, you know, exact scenarios, but we're dealing with human beings and there's just, there's so many variables that they go in that go into it. And one of the things that I try to do when I start to, you know, look into a lot of the texts that I've, I've dove into from an energy system development and all this other stuff is I look at trends. What are, what are the best doing and what are they saying from, from, uh, from the similarities, right? What is everybody saying that is correct? And listen, if there's a bunch of people that's smarter than I am and they're saying, this is probably the direction to go, I'm going to listen to those individuals. And, and that's how I look at a lot of those, you know, the scientific research, because again, we know we're dealing with people and it's just multifactorial. And that's, that's something that I think a lot of people forget when they're looking at the individual's there's so many different directions we could go in. Would you say that that's accurate? One hundred percent. First of all, um, I think, and I say that as someone, I don't. I'm far from considering myself a, a researcher because researchers are out there doing real research on real things that matter for our society to evolve and progress. I just do research as part of my job to get better answers of what I do, and I think if as a as a practitioner slash researcher, if I can do a study and that study shows me what not to do and shows me what I'm left with that I can further expand on, further investigate, that's going to narrow down my way of doing things, pointing me toward the right direction. I'm not looking for an answer. Research is probably not going to give me the answer. It's going to put me toward the right direction. And then I am going to get my answer because I look at research, how it carries over to day-to-day type of work and situations, if I can apply what I learned from research more than the answer, what I learned with the process of doing research, I can apply that to coaching my athletes. And guess what? My athletes are winning. I'm doing something right. That's already a good response for me for what I need. I don't need to have the exact answer. I need to know that what I'm doing is somewhat closer 
to what he showed, what research show is working. And on top of that, one other thing that you said that was very uh, important to me too, is like a lot of research is done in a vacuum. Like it's done in a situation that is not very ecological, so to speak. It's not real life applications. And it drives me nuts when I see that, um, I'm not gonna refer to anyone in particular, but there are people out there that pretend to teach something so complicated as biomechanics by seating someone on a freaking chest press or leg press or leg extension and teaching them biomechanics. You're looking at a joint, you're looking at mechanics, you're working with a robot. If you wanna do real biomechanics, put them on a squat, put them on a lunge, put them on a deadlift, deal with levers, muscle fiber type, hormones, experience, motor learning, learning curve, all those good things that come into the word bio before the word biomechanics, you know, is mechanics of living organism. As to be a living organism in a living environment, in a normal environment without too many constraints, because otherwise the result you're going to have is going to be somewhat filtered and skewed by this very same constraints that you put on when you do research. If you're testing something in an open skill environment, as to be in an open skill environment, the moment you close that environment, you protect the subject from all type of like perturbations, you're altering the result. It's not, it's not applicable on a larger scale. And that's something that to be fancy, to be cool, and to be like very rigorous in terms of statistics and science, lots of people end up doing. And it's, I think it's just pulling us away from our real needs in terms of research instead of moving the whole field forward, you know? Can I get an amen on that? Yes. We're going to just, we're going to turn it off right there. Cause that was a knowledge bomb. No, that was awesome because it's yeah. so refreshing to hear. And I think a lot of the strength and conditioning coaches feel the same way, but they weren't able to articulate it in the way that you just did. So thank you for that because I was just, my mind was blown. There's one other thing I want to talk about that you said earlier, and then we'll, we'll start to change gears a little bit. You talked about the research on elite athletes and you, you mentioned sort of the F1 car versus like the Honda Accord basically, right? We're going to, we're going to do our research on, on sort of that F1 car. And do you think one of the reasons why it's important to do research on elite athletes is because you can see more granular changes in their adaptations because they're already advanced to that point. And when you get an untrained individual, almost anything will work. So do you think because of the fact that we're working with athletes that already have skill acquisition, they already have been through that GPP phase, we can see those subtle changes in performance and that will hopefully give us more somewhat accurate information on how those slight changes in programming and periodization are going to actually help the athlete. Is that one of the main reasons why you, you believe that the research is done on those elite athletes versus the gen pop? Absolutely. I think when, when you work with um, elite athletes in any sport, any sport, um, you're going to get three things that are extremely valuable. You're going to have an entry level that is a pretty similar level of skill, physical development, technique, tactic, all those cool variables that are going to affect your outcome. So you're playing, you're, you're moving on a, on a fair play of ground, uh, fair playground. I think that's the right way to say it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, and on top of that, you have a much greater degree of control on the training intervention because usually the training of elite level athletes is somewhat more specialized, formulaic, and consistent so you have much less distractions of many things that can be going on in the training process and like you said 
those athletes are already extremely com competent and competitive. So the little change that is going to create an adaptation, a positive adaptation, is going to merge much more than it would otherwise do in a group of subjects that are mostly unconditioned. And therefore, anything you do is going to improve them. It's very difficult to pinpoint which one is the key factor that brought them to be, to be better athletes. Like, just give you an example. We were doing a study on um, plyometric training. Now, if you take even just a recreational type of uh, subject to use more like research terminology they might not be doing plyometric training per se or jump training but they're for sure doing some type of jumping they're for sure doing some type of lifting they're playing a sport which has a plyometric component to it with all these cows going on and get them getting adapted to all these different type of stimuli how can you know for a fact that if you add three sets of depth jumps, you're going to make that much of an impact. And that is the one thing that changed your performance outcome. But if you're on the other end, you're working with elite level athletes who have a very consolidated and structured training routine. They're very consistent and methodical in the way they go about their program. They have precise workload, intensity, rest periods. Everything is already very well calculated. Well, if you have the same identical program that you used to do, and you do nothing but adding one variable, one only, which is a depth jump, if you see a performance change, then you know your intervention probably did something good. So you can control for those variables a bit better. I love it. And uh, it makes me think of the, the uh, military research is typically something that's kind of prized uh, within uh, multiple areas of study because you have a somewhat homogenous population. They're living the same life. They're eating the same food. They're under the same stress. Like a lot of those variables that you just talked about are kind of controlled for within that kind of military environment. And to throw it back to the more Soviet oriented research where they were tracking athletes and teams over multiple Olympic cycles, uh, you had a similar situation. You had groups of athletes that were really uh, living the same life, eating the same food, uh, getting this kind of great experience uh, uh, to optimize their athletic performance. Um, so I, I think it's a, an interesting point because, and then, you know, we could get into the the study size and, and an N of 12 subjects uh, versus an, uh, a military or Olympic research, which might have an N of hundreds of, of people. So I, I think all of that is uh, uh, valuable information in, cause I, I think, and throw it to you on this, um, the individual's ability to read research, to be a, a, a good reader and understander of research, I think is somewhat limited, uh, just because like a lot of people coming into the fitness industry through the side door, right? They, they enjoyed working out. They become a personal trainer. They don't necessarily have the background in biomechanics and physiology and, and research. Um, what, so I'll throw it to you there and ask the question, how do you become better at reading research? Well, if, if that's okay for you, I would like to give you a real life example of like how much people don't really read research and what comes out of it is a very poor understanding of physiology and a poor understanding of training. Love and it. I feel comfortable doing that because that's, 99% of what I do for my own research, which is on eccentric training. Um, when you pull out an article or a study that is published after the 1970s or 1980s, 
even the word eccentric training is used without a context. Uh, you take these articles, if you, if you take back the real research on eccentric training that was done in the 60s and 70s, mostly we're looking at studies on like EMG, a little bit of training intervention, but mostly like EMG studies. They were referring to eccentric training the way I intended, which is supramaximal eccentric training. So is eccentric training done with a load above your one rem max? And they, they studied it, um, they researched on it, and they found out that if you can add a certain percentage of real eccentric strength training to your regular routine, you're gonna be improving not just strength, but also rate of force development, power, uh, stiffness, and a bunch of other good stuff that comes with it. And that was back in the 70s. What happened after that is that the, the topic of eccentric training uh, trickled down into like physical therapy and other fields of research and no one even bothered anymore about saying whether that was supramaximally centric training or submaximally centric training. Because for a physical therapist, and there's nothing wrong with that, but for a physical therapist, if I ask you to do eccentric training, I'm doing that with very light load, very high time under tension, and I'm doing that for hypertrophy. But that's not the same eccentric training that originally people were researching. And that was just lost in translation in the research itself. So people that are doing research are not even qualifying their methods in a way that makes them applicable. So put yourself in someone else's shoes, like a, a new grad or like a beginning beginner coach. I go out on my way and I actually go and look for a research paper on eccentric training. And I found out that eccentric training is great for muscle hypertrophy, makes you very sore. And you do that at 60 to 70% of one max. Well, that doesn't really reflect the real type of eccentric training that you want to do if you're working in a poor performance type of environment because you don't really care about hypertrophy that much. Uh, hypertrophy is more like a secondary goal of yours. You, you, you prioritize neuromuscular adaptation. You, you prioritize like strength, power, rate of force development. But if you then take that model of submaximal eccentric training and you applied it within the context of strength and conditioning, you're not going to get the results you expect to get. You're going to get something else out of it. And that's because you maybe, you maybe are reading the right research, but the research is presenting you the information in a way that is not true to the actual construct they're investigating. So it gets, a, it gets pretty complicated. 100%. And uh, I think what might be muddying the waters even more nowadays, and then I have, I, I have many comments, uh, the, that what might be muddying the waters even more today is the research on eccentrics for tendinopathies. Yeah. Uh, I think people are misinterpreting some of that information. Uh, and we know that eccentrics uh, and, and a particular type of eccentrics can be very effective for tendinopathies. That's come out very strongly through the, through the uh, physical therapy research, but that's not performance. That's not strength conditioning research. And I would say the biggest trend, and we had a conversation about this. And when I asked this question, I didn't realize I was talking to a freaking eccentric uh, researcher, you know, kind of expert. Uh, I was just being me and, and asking, you know, stupid questions. Um, but, you know, the, the biggest trend right now towards people training eccentrics is pausing within a motion. So incorporating a pause into a bench press, incorporating a pause into a squat, uh, even pauses within deadlifts. And while that is a form of static dynamic and essentially uh, a form of isometric, um, the, it, it almost messes with the eccentric profile and, and kind of, I, I don't know, where, where, where do you, uh, 
that static dynamic versus eccentric, like where, where do we go with that? I don't know. Like, let me take it just one step back and then I answer your question too. So if you talk to the, and with all the respect to anyone in this profession, but the average strength and conditioning coach in a college setting, for instance, you talk to them about like eccentric training, like the real eccentric training. So supramaximal eccentric training. The first thing they're going to tell you is that because of one paper, one published in the, I think it was 1999 or 2001, either one, on the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that proved that if you do supramaximal eccentric training, all you increase is eccentric strength and there's no carryover to performance. Just because of that study, they're going to tell you, I don't care about supramaximal eccentric training. I'm not going to do it. But then if you ask them, oh, did you actually read that paper and see what type of intervention they were doing? No one will have an answer for you. You go in that paper and you realize that one group was only doing supramaximal, supramaximal eccentric training only. The other group was only doing conventional concentric training. And of course, physiology tells us that adaptation is specific for the demand imposed, specific adaptation to impose demand. So if you do only centric, you're only going to get better at eccentric. If you do only concentric, you're only going to get better at concentric. But maybe if you do a mix of both, there may be a more beneficial outcome in terms of performance. And guess what? Then it's been proved over and over and over again in research published in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We're like a combination of eccentric and concentric in different ratio with concentric being submaximal and eccentric being supramaximal yields better results in terms of force development, rate of force development, power, and so far and so forth. And we don't really have to go back that far. 1981, Comey and Akinen published two papers on it and they're available in English. So anyone can read them, but no one goes the extra step not even say just learn Russian and go look at like Russian research. It's in English. It's right there. You can, if, if you just go past the one paper that showed up on your Google Scholar or PubMed and you just dig a little deeper and you do your homework and you really try to learn the topic at hand, you figured out that a lot of answer or directions are already there for you to follow. You just have to look for them. Wow, I hope I, I answered. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So couple couple things I want to I want to talk about and you were talking about you know submax submaximal supermaximal and the context is really really important because you're right the said principle it, it's you get better at what you do right that's pretty pretty simple and that's why we need to do a little bit of everything because we need to we need to build an athlete like no one there's no as far as I know no super eccentric national championships right I mean Exactly. So people aren't looking to necessarily do that. But the other thing we have to consider too is yes, people are going to cherry pick the research and they're going to look at things that are going to fall in line with their own confirmation bias. But the other thing we need to consider is even if they do understand the research and the application, is the athlete even ready to go down that route? Does the athlete have the, the, the movement competency, the, the maturity have they developed their overall GPP pro profile, right? And I think what happens is people read all this high-level research done on the F1 car, done on the elite athlete, and they're applying it to a 12-year-old high school girl because that's what the research said. And it's like, no, 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 you're missing the point here. And that's my biggest issue with a lot of <clears throat> cherry-picking of research is, I mean, you said it, all of this research is done on elite athletes, and yet people are trying to take this information and apply it to a 12 or a 13, 14-year-old kid. And it's just, it's in my opinion, it's irresponsible. It's just pure misapplication. I agree. And 
sometimes um, for the sake of doing research, they jump to conclusions that are very much not safe for an athlete. And what I'm referring to is like, for instance, if you want to do research on something that involves an entry level of strength, for instance, like you want to do super maximally centric training research, you're going to have to push past your one max. So you have to have a certain level of, of, of strength to begin with, to be able to handle that. Um, one thing is making the claim that your subjects have a certain one max, for instance, and therefore they're clear to do more intense training. If you got to that point by doing a short training program and you peaked at the end, you tested and you got, you got that one rep max, that is far from being your current level of strength. That was probably a fluke more than an actual data point. You need to get there, stay there, train at that load, own that gain, and then that is your level of fitness. And then you can go about doing different types of training interventions. But like lots of people just filter everything by numbers, like one max or uh, jump height. If you eat it once in research, that doesn't show anything about your level of fitness. You need to, there's a reason why experience matters when you select your subjects, because you may have two subjects with the same identical one max, but one only tested it one day at the end of like a four weeks block. And one has been used it that way for a year or two years or three years. The level of fitness is going to be completely different. Your performance outcome is going to be completely different. But most importantly, the level of safety for the subjects to go through certain protocols is going to be completely different. Yeah, that that uh, one RM strength base needs to be your eighty yeah. percent, not your one RM. Um, and and that's that's a huge uh, piece of the puzzle. And and uh, to pull it back into like how most people operate, uh, they think because they hit a one RM once that's their new strength base. Well, you, you switch training routines a little bit and you try to go back and pull that one RM ain't, ain't happening. And if it does happen again, it probably wasn't a one RM. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, um, to, to kind of turn just a, a little bit away from issues within the research. Cause I think we could do 10 more podcasts on issues within the research and, and go down multiple rabbit holes. Um, what, what are the, what are the golden spots? What are, what are the, what are the essentials? Like what does, um, either somebody that is uh, purely a coach and practitioner, uh, in this evidence-based, um, uh, the, the fervor for evidence-based sort of work nowadays, what, what are the essentials? What's, where does somebody really need to get their focus to, to get the best out of the research? You know, um, especially when it comes to strength training for sport, which is the area I feel a bit more comfortable talking about. I think you, you eat a home run or you really get to something that is very valuable. Um, if you can figure it out, and it's the name of your podcast, so it's very appropriate, the minimum effective dose to get results for many, many reasons. First, the majority of athletes nowadays are overtraining. So if you can lower down the volume and the intensity that they do in the weight room, you're already doing something good. Great. Second, strength training should never, ever be the goal of your intervention. You're doing strength training to support performance in sport. If you can pull back on the volume that you're doing in the weight room to give them either more time to rest or more time to practice their sport, you're doing them a service. You're doing, them, you're doing something good for them. Third, 
if you can get more out of your time by doing less in a more efficient manner, you're also exposing your athletes to less risk of injury overall. So I think and doing the, doing the minimum effective dose is not as simple as it sounds. It's not just a question of cutting down volume. It's a question of finding the right exercises in the right order with the right load at the right velocity with the right rest time. It's, it's a lot that goes into it. But if you can tackle the same topics from different point of views, filter down the information and come with programs that are shorter and more effective, you hit the jackpot. I mean, it doesn't, go, it doesn't get any better than that. I love it. I love it. And, and uh, I've said for a long time that uh, simplicity is purchased at the price of complexity. You, you've gone down the rabbit hole. You've, you've had to you know, experience the, the, the tumble and the, all of the different variables. And then hopefully you come out the other end with uh, you know, the, the minimum effective dose. What do we need to do? And I, I think I, I'm always get concerned when I see a trainer or strength coach who gets hired by a new team or takes on a new opportunity. And he's like, you know, he or she is like, Oh, this, this group is about to become better athletes. Cause I'm getting involved. And I'm like, Oh no, they're, they're in trouble because, <laughs> <laughs> because creating, creating better athletes in the weight room is um, and strength coaches love to do this, right? I'm, if I'm a strength coach and my team wins the championship, I'm going to take credit if my, I'm a strength coach, and my, my team loses a game. I'm going to blame the coach for the call they made. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to own that one, even though I may have exhausted their team to your point in training and not given them the ability to recover. So I, I think it's an interesting, uh, Mike mentioned it earlier uh, and I was looking it up on my phone uh, while we were talking um, and I'm joking by the way, but uh, the uh, confirmation bias, um, I, I think we just love to uh, think that we're the secret sauce. You know, um, you also mentioned earlier uh, some of the Soviet research done back in the day. Um, I, I, I find it a little disturbing when a lot of people make the claim that um, the Soviets, the Bulgarian methods for those who approach the Soviet system through lifting, but the Soviets were all about high volume, high frequency, high intensity, and drugs. That's partially true because... They have very high training frequency. They, have, they used to have very high training loads. And a lot of them were using uh, performance enhancing drugs because that was part of the system. But those who were not doing that, which are equally studied and included in a lot of manuals and textbooks that went up, they were literally going the opposite direction. They were trying to do the minimum amount of work in the weight room to get stronger. Like I had the privilege of working with Natalia Verkoshansky and helped her to translate some of the books and put together some of the original work from uh, Professor Yuri Verkoshansky, some textbooks that have never been published before. So some of the most authentic work written by Verkoshansky. With the majority of his athlete, it was, and he's, it belongs to the Soviet system. So we would expect him to do hours and hours and hours of strength training a week. He was doing three sessions. He was doing an handful of squats and a few depth jumps, and that was it. That's all he needed to get his athletes to win gold medals at the Olympics. Now, if we look at the complexity in the designing of that program over time, then it gets very complicated because he was playing with like intensity, volume, uh, speed, different level of plyometrics, different dropping heights and whatnot. So it's very sophisticated, but the core of it is a few exercises, just what the athletes need 
in the right amount of load that the, uh, the athlete can recover from so they can be more performing in their weight room. Then yes, of course, there were training blocks basing on the block training system where volume was higher, intensity was higher, but during that time, they were not even practicing the sports. It was just for strength training. But they, when they were in season or approaching the major competitions, their volume in the weight room was extremely low. Their frequency was extremely low. Their intensity was up to the sky because they were doing sets at 90, 95, 97% of water max, but they could recover from it. And the combination of exercise was really what the thing that was really driving the results. So the science behind it, more than just the sheer volume of work that you do in a weight room. Amazing. Uh, and I was, I'm so glad you brought that up because I am aware of, the, of those translations that you've done. Um, and uh, maybe you can uh, share with us where we can eventually find those because uh, I think those would be valuable researchers, uh, resources for anybody listening to the podcast and, and something that we can help you get the word out uh, about. Oh, thank you. So we, we have just published one book that I translated myself, which is um, Strength Training uh, by Carmelo Bosco. And that's in my, I didn't write the book, so I no need to take credit for it. I, I just translated it. But in my opinion, uh, it's something that is very much comparable with the super training of real science. So it's just as extensive and just as comprehensive. What I like about this work compared to um, super training, which is also a great book, is that Carmelo Bosco was, he had two PhDs. He, had, he published more than 200 papers and seven books. So he was an academics, but he never stopped coaching. So when you, when you read his chapters, out of every chapter, you can take on something that you can apply to your training. It's very applicable with exercises, loads, velocity, rest periods. It's not just science. It's science turned into practice. So I love that. We are translating now a very old manual from Zachowski. Uh, Zachowski is very much known for... Uh, science and practice of strength training, but Zacharski has done a lot of research in modern learning and control as well. And the book that we're publishing is from 1969. He got it for us because it was impossible to find and we're gonna be translated in English. And then we have uh, seven volumes of, um, Colin, they're not real books. They're more like manuals that uh, Professor Yuri Verkozhansky wrote when he moved from Russia to Italy. And he wrote them as manual for the Italian Olympic Committee to use with their athletes. So they were never published. It was all based on current research done at that time to guide the process of training Olympic level athletes. There's six modules and we are, they've only been, they've only been published in Italian, unfortunately, in other language. So we're currently translating them in English and putting them in one volume with the help of Natalia Verkozhansky herself. So she's guiding me through the process I wouldn't change a word of anything I'm translating. I'm trying, it, I'm trying to keep it as close as possible uh, to the original uh, work. And I can say like, Bosco book, for instance, like I've read it when I was in undergrad school back in early 2000. And back then I just didn't know what I didn't know, you know? So I was reading through the book. It looks super cool, but very little I understood about research, let alone the actual job of a strength and conditioning coach than then I've been doing for a long time. So reading it back some 20 years later, like I, I've still learned from it. It's, it's a never ending resource of a, like uh, data, good quality research, applicable program. So again, it's not something that I wrote, so I had no benefit in taking credit for. I just wanted 
to preserve it before it could have gone lost in time because no one ever uh, bothered about translating it before. So something that I think researchers and practitioners should go back and read. Where do we find it? Uh, it's published by Ultimate Athlete Concept. So they sell it on Amazon, on their website. Uh, it's pretty, I think Elite FTS is selling it too. So it's on different sources. Um, on behalf of Ultimate Athlete Concept, I can say it's probably easier on Amazon uh, because it's shipped <laughs> with Amazon Prime. So it gets to you like a day and a half, a day. But yes, it's, it's out there. And um, a few other books are coming up soon. They're all available on Amazon for sure. Well, awesome. That uh, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned at your level of underachieving. I, I think maybe, uh, maybe you should start to do more. <laughs> <laughs> I was, you know, I think you should maybe translate a few more books. Um, you know, I, I have trouble with Dr. Seuss books, so I'm just going to leave that to you. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit about um, these, these training charts where we look at the detraining effect in training residuals. And uh, I think one of the, the biggest things that I see in the world of strength and conditioning, and I've dove fairly deep into energy system development and in a lot of the texts that you were talking about. And my big thing is I try to take, I try to take a specific topic, whether it's speed training. And again, I try to try to find the similarities between what all the best are doing and then sort of find a way that I can apply that to my athletes. And that's just how I, I tend to approach things. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you was we, we have this, uh, this chart that has been in, it's in, uh, you know, block training, it's in periodization. It's in a lot of these, uh, sports science book, sports science books, where they talk about the detraining effects. So there's two, two main things that I think people start off with is they look at, okay, if we develop strength and we develop the aerobic base, we can hang on to those training effects for a month, approximately plus or minus five days based off of the individual. So the question I have for you is, number one, do you find that to be accurate? And then number two, who does that actually apply to? Because that doesn't apply to the, the 12 or the 13 year old kid that's never lifted, right? It probably applies to those individuals that already had that elite training background. And because they are so highly trained, their detraining effect is probably going to be less than the individual that didn't have that high level of training to begin with. Is that accurate? Very much so. So um, allow me to just take it a step back and say that uh, usually, so and I, I beg you to correct me if I'm wrong or if I go out of track because I'm just going, going with you. So let's say that I'm an athlete and let's say that I've gone through, I don't know, four weeks of strength training strengthening block, mid-cycle, call it whatever. And I got to a certain level of strength. Now, if I want to um, understand or see what the uh, effect of detraining would be, I would have to completely discontinue what I'm doing in terms of strength training, go about my life and do other forms of training, like my sport-specific type of training, plyometrics, stuff that is not primarily geared toward strength, and see if after four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, I still have the same level of strength. If I do, that is great because it means that like I can carry on with a certain level of neuromuscular efficiency and tune in all the skills at a higher level of efficiency. And that, in essence, is the block training system that Verkozhansky pioneered back in the 70s, which is very similar to the block training system, to the block periodization, but it's not the same thing. They're different. The block training system there were short period of times where athletes were only doing lifting 
and they were only getting strong, usually two to three weeks, and then 10 to 15 days where there was no lifting at all, lots of plyometrics, lots of um, uh, conjugate systems. So training the skill with an overload to carry on that benefit of strength training and maximize their performance on other like sport specific movements. And that to me is almost the gold standard of well done strength training for sport because I'm increasing my capacity, so to speak, which can be strength or aerobic power, whatever you want to look at. And then I'm using that capacity, that physical capacity to train and compete in my sport at a higher level of efficiency. Now for that, uh, residual training effect to carry on um, how long is going to last and how much I'm going to be able to retain it's very very difficult to prove because if you look at your level of strength being a beginner coming into strength training you go stronger in four weeks and then you stop and you expect that residual training effect to last for four to six weeks it's not going to happen because you literally just got stronger you barely tap into your functional adaptation. You haven't even achieved any level of structural adaptation or long lasting change in your muscle architecture and so far and so forth. So everything you gain is gone. Like two, three weeks, you're out. Uh, if you're an elite level athlete who train for 20 years and you have been going through these cycles over and over and over again, you can probably stay more than a month and still retain your level of strength. With that being said, also detraining affects differently, different type of qualities. Strength as a certain type of detraining, aerobic power as a certain type of detraining. In general, uh, qualities that rely on a lot of structural adaptation, so a lot of protein synthesis, uh, tend to last less than, than qualities that rely more on functional adaptation, like CNS type of adaptation. Um, so like enzymes are lost very quickly or hypertrophy can be lost quicker than strength. So it depends on what you're looking at. Uh, but to answer your question somehow, I would actually challenge practitioners to see where the residual training effect is and maximize it in their training. Don't assume you know it, test it, see it, play with it. Like do four weeks of training, test your squat, water max, whatever the case may be, and then stop doing strength training and retest it every week. And you will see how it goes up. And then when it starts to go down and when the difference becomes significant and you learn that for that subject, that is the detraining curve that you're looking at. And that's valuable information that you can use in your program design. Because again, I really believe that real strength training for sport is extremely intense, is extremely taxing. And if it can be done in a separate period of time from like more sport specific type of training, it's less likely that an athlete is going to get hurt. And also when they then move to sport specific training, so to speak, there are better chances for them to recover, be less fatigued and perform at their best. Because I think it's a quote from Michael Jordan, but like, it's not just about practice. It's good practice that makes you better. And if you can practice in a state of less fatigue, because you're not doing much lifting and in a state of heightened neuromuscular efficiency, because you're coming from a period of heavy strength training, that's where you practice at your best. That's when you adapt at your best and that's where you're gonna be performing at your best. So I think it's something that is worth ex like exploring. Very good. Thank Two comments. Um, in a mesocycle, um, 
you know, a lot of people think in these two to four week blocks, but stabilization of the benefits you get in the first two to four, you really need like a six week mesocycle to, to start to stabilize that strength effect that you've gotten. And what, one of the things, if I'm, if I'm correct, and, and I am here to be told I'm not, um, is fiber conversion. You actually decrease your type 2X um, fibers during strength training. And then as you quit the strength training and you go back to these more power-based or plyometric or sport-specific, you get this rebound effect of, uh, from type, uh, type uh, 1A to, to 2X and, and you get the more power, you, you get the benefit of the strength training. And uh, Pavel was talking about it at the programming improv seminar and he, he was referencing somebody. Uh, and the test subjects would always be like, well, you know, I'm doing so much better because I stopped strength training. And he's like, well, listen to that. It's not because you weren't strength training. It's because you stopped strength training. You allowed that fiber conversion to take place. And now you're seeing this, this benefit and how you cycle that for specific events, because most athletes can't operate on an Olympic cycle. You have to be ready multiple times throughout a year or multiple times within a week. Uh, so there's, there's, that's where the complexity really gets layered in. So I, I think it's fascinating just how uh, that conversation on detraining or uh, carryover effect uh, gets into these multiple areas. And allow me to add one little thing. What you said was, I agree on everything. Uh, I think where we're um, adding towards now in terms of day-to-day um, -day practice in strengthening for sport is that literally what you said is perfect out of a textbook. Like you do more heavy strength training, you get a certain type of adaptation and then you kind of let it bleed out and you let your like level of performance to raise afterward. And that's brilliant. But there, there's probably a way where we can still improve strength and power using traditional heavy lifting between huge quotations because heavy is very always very relative so heavy lifting without having that negative effect on type one muscle fiber and primarily targeting type two muscle fiber so that carryover is even more so and even better because there's less detrimental effect from heavy lifting. And that is where velocity-based training or training controlling for velocity or using velocity loss or buffer zones, then managing fatigue and speed to some extent in your, in your lifting sessions really comes into play. And if you can do that well, it's not like you're doing, it's not like heavy lifting is bad and this other way of doing things is better is just more efficient and it's going to get you an even better carryover long term and that's where like that's the reason why so many uh, researchers and practitioners nowadays are so focused on velocity-based training because that seems to be um, the most effective way to uh, improve strength with a greater carryover on ballistics and power rate of force development in particular dbt done at about 0.6 meter per second whatever the load equals to seems to be the most effective way to getting stronger, getting more explosive, getting more powerful, but also improve that or smoothen that process of carrying over from strength training into more like sport specific type of training. Fascinating. I love it. So um, one yeah. thing I want to sort of ask you about was uh, Brett, you mentioned muscle fiber type. 
And uh, I was listening to some work of Dr. Andy Galpin, who's out in California, and he does a lot of muscle biopsies on, you know, fiber, you know, <clears throat> fiber types and, and conversion of fibers. And, and I'm, I'm just completely fascinated by that. But um, he was talking about um, a study, and I don't know if he did the study or if he was just referring to the study of um, identical twins, yeah. exact same DNA. And he was basically saying we had two identical twins. One individual didn't do really anything. And the other individual did a lot of long distance running, a lot of sort of aerobic based stuff. And then they actually did biopsies and the muscle fiber types and the individual that did the long distance running actually had a lot more slow twitch fibers and the individual that didn't do anything actually had higher and more dense, uh, fast twitch fibers. And he hasn't done a darn thing, which is, which is really cool to see because we have sort of this predisposed genetic fiber types in which we're born with, but the trainability is there. Like the, the individual that did all of this aerobic training in this, uh, you know, sort of long steady state stuff actually converted fibers. And I think a lot of people just assume I'm just born with, these are my genes. These are my, these, this is my DNA. I'm a fast twitch guy. I'm a slow twitch guy. And it's like, no specificity is King. And if you want to train to be more explosive, you have to train with a purpose and you can actually convert fibers, which is so cool. So the old, oh, I'm a, I'm a slow twitch guy and a fast twitch guy. Yeah, we can be predisposed to that. But um, I thought it was so fascinating to see how we can actually, like fiber types will change with specific training. And that to me just blew my mind. I hope, do I have a little bit of time to answer this question? Because yes, you do. It's a Go. lovely topic. Uh, Dr. Galpin <laughs> is a lovely person. He's on my research committee, so I know him very well. Um, and I love everything he's doing, so it, it, it's brilliant. Um, I'll try to do my best not to mess up with this because he's the expert. I'm just trying to uh, go along with it. But like when we when we look at a, at a mass, we look at the muscle fiber is a cell, and the cell does what we ask it to do, so like contract and create force. Um, that cell alone doesn't really tell us much about what it's capable of doing. It's the motor unit that is capable of either creating a lot of force or not creating a lot of force. And the motor unit is a alpha neuron and a number of fibers connected to it. Now, when we look at just the fiber type composition, we usually refer to as slow twitch and fast twitch. Slow twitch are usually referred to as like red muscle fibers just because they have more myoglobin, so they color different on a microscope. Uh, fast twitch muscle fiber are white because they have less uh, myoglobin. So type two are, type one are more like endurance type fibers and type two are more like power slash strength type fibers. And that's just looking at their metabolic makeup. So one type of cell has more enzymes and more mitochondria and more oxygen, therefore it can perform better aerobically. The other cell has less mitochondria, less, less aerobic enzymes, more glycogen, more anaerobic enzymes, and therefore they can perform better in short, vigorous type of exercises. But that's just looking at their metabolic profile. Then if you trace them back to the neuron, you realize that slow twitch motor units, so a bunch of fibers connected to one neuron, that neuron doesn't change in size. And a small neuron can only generate a lower level of threshold of activation. So it's only capable of generating a limited amount of force. Whereas a bigger neuron can generate more motor potential and therefore can activate those fibers to a greater extent to create more force. So when you look at this carryover between fibers, 
that carryover happens at the metabolic level. So if I only train aerobically, my fast twitch fibers are going to develop more aerobic qualities, so to speak, and vice versa. But my training cannot change the size and the quality of the motor neuron. So if I have predominantly type one muscle fibers, yes, I can train for strength and power and I can become pretty good at that in the normal population, but I will never become an Olympic level athlete. So there is an upper ceiling in a specific sport that is based on my genetic makeup. If I am naturally rich in type one muscle fibers, and then I train as an endurance athlete that I have much better chances of become very, very, very good at my sport. So in that type of like, if you look at the normal distribution of the population in the middle area, we're like, we're all training to get better and we're probably going to compete somewhere somehow, but we're not looking at winning Olympic medals. We can pretty much convert as much as we please and still get good results in sport. Like I've trained for 20 years of my life as a powerlifting, a powerlifter and weightlifter. And here I am running a 5k in 19 minutes. I just changed my training and I became more aerobic, but I'm never going to run a 5k in 13 minutes, like an actual runner does because my genetic makeup doesn't bring me there. But I still had a lot of carryover in my training, switching from aerobic to anaerobic. Uh, so the majority of the population can have a good positive level of carryover in terms of metabolic adaptation. But if you look at those extreme outliers, like the Olympic gold medals, the Usain Bolt of the situation, they probably were born with the perfect makeup for the sport. And they were blessed and lucky enough to find someone that point them toward the right direction and train them for the sport that they were born for. Because a lot of sub athletes, subjects, people call it whatever you want, they might have had huge potentials to excel in a sport. They were just never trained or exposed to that sport to begin with. So it's a combination of luck, good talent identification, and um, a lot of like years of training too. Wow. I mean, I feel like uh, one thing I got to say, Brad, this is, this, I got to throw this in. I feel like I'm in Goodwill hunting where he's like, my boy's wicked smart. <laughs> it's just like, I just feel like he just schooled everybody. So uh, I'm over here like writing notes and, and uh, you know, what you said is just, uh, I can't wait to listen to this podcast again because I'm learning so much. So um, I just want to say thank you for that. Even not that we're done, but I'm, I'm fired up right now. So Brett, you can go ahead and talk about movie quotes and whatever you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the two things uh, I remember uh, research, I think it was Chad Waterbury talking about how uh, if you take a fast twitch motor neuron and you put it into what was previously uh, you remove the slow twitch neuron and put the fast twitch neuron in those fibers become fast twitch. Yep. Um, so the neuron really does uh, uh, that's the determiner between what's going to happen there, uh, which I think is fascinating. And I think it kind of uh, may hurt some people's feelings with some of their, uh, you know, fiber conversion uh, ideas. Um, and for the, so I'm the, I'm the general trainer, right? I don't, train a, uh, a team, a sport. I'm not really training athletes right now. It's just me and general people that want to get fit. And I don't specify their training based on any type of fiber type information because for the general trainee, it doesn't matter as far as I can tell. 
Um, now if I started training an endurance athlete or a power athlete, or, you know, somebody that needed to optimize their skills for sport, I would certainly change that mindset and, and work in those directions. Um, for the general trainee, how much do they need to worry about fiber type? Almost nothing. If I have to be very honest with you, meaning like if you just look at general fitness, uh, type one muscle fibers are extremely useful for their reason. Type two muscle fibers are extremely useful for a reason. Uh, it's just better to develop both them equally. Um, it's a completely different ball gaming sport. Uh, mm -hmm. And allow me to say one thing and I keep it short because I don't want to abuse your time. <laughs> but, and I speak for experience in sp speed and power type of events like track and field, weightlifting, all that, those type of explosive events. Uh, the major, the number one reason why a lot of programs, strength training programs fail is not because of the quality of the exercise selection and the loads and the intensity zones, because they're all chosen correctly to develop power. It's for one reason only, which is volume. Too much volume brings you to too much fatigue. Too much fatigue forces you to switch motor pattern activation. And that ends up training type of muscle fibers that you don't want to develop, uh, read type one muscle fibers, and ultimately get rid of some of the good benefits you get by improving fast twitch muscle fibers by developing type one muscle fibers as well. So for those that are working with, and I can only speak about that because I've never coached any endurance sport besides a few random triathletes, um, which is nothing to be able to talk about that, but I have a lot of experience in explosive sports. The less you do, the more explosive you are in training, the more specific your type of adaptation is for your type two muscle fibers, the better, result, the better results you're going to get in sport. Well, and you know, I've been the, one of the drums that I've been beating for quite a while now is that rest is the single most abused training variable. I agree 100%. Nobody wants to rest enough either between sets, between sessions, like they, they think that uh, intensity and fatigue are king and they're just, but, but, you know, we got pointed that direction 25 years ago when high intensity interval training became the main method uh, or most, most dominant method. Uh, so I, I think that to hear that reinforced uh, both from the standpoint of, of uh, not only muscle fibers, but also just that, that carryover, that conversion we're talking about to doing the best thing for the athlete um, and, and optimizing that is, is, uh, is really just good reinforcement. That's what I always tell to my students, like, okay, you're doing, you think you're doing strength training. Are you getting fatigued? Yes. Your adaptation is going to be specific for what you're doing in the weight room. You're learning how to tolerate fatigue. You're doing some form of endurance. Your performance is declining. Your power <laughs> output is declining. Maybe you're doing power endurance training or strength endurance training, but you're not getting stronger. You're not getting more powerful. You need to look at what you're doing in your training because that's what you're going to be adapting to. And unfortunately, like I agree with you 100%. People underestimate the importance of resting between sets sometimes even resting between repetitions, resting between workouts, like is very much, and that's a lot of like misinformations coming from the media and years of bad informations in general, you know. 
Absolutely. And we'll have to schedule another podcast because we, we didn't even get to go down the rabbit hole of uh, single set versus multiple set versus, you know, all of these directions that I feel like American research has gone down. That is just a distraction from, from good training and, and from, from actual, you know, methods that, that, that can matter. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. I, I think that, that capstone right there, that you're abusing your rest. And like you said, you know, you, you're not, if you're accumulating fatigue, you stop training strength. You, you stop training power. Um, and you, you, you know, we have some former, um, uh, NSCA level, uh, national championship sprinters and, you know, you talk to them and they're like, yeah, we ran a sprint every 15 minutes. Yep. (laughs) Wasn't a one to two work to rest ratio. It was a massive rest ratio because you had to recover. And when you look into the science of not only the energy system recovery, uh, but also the, uh, the, the neurological recovery that, that a uh, high intensity power output uh, effort uh, requires, you're resting for a long time. Not that you can't do some other things in between there, but they got to be very different. Anyway, that, that's, that's the next podcast. So, um, Antonio, uh, I, I begin to know what I don't know, uh, when, when we speak and, uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your, your willingness to hop on and, and help us out and, and help those folks out. And, and I think we, we definitely would like to get you on again and maybe just really drill down on that a minimum effective dose sort of conversation that, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, the differences there between for a general trainee, And yeah, I tell people all the time, I'm not training for anything. I I, I'm training for life. I'm training because I enjoy training. Um, And, you know, so for me, training can be all of these different things. Um, But if we want to drill down on a particular um, quality that we want to develop, obviously that the training needs to become more focused. So um, my friend, I look forward to having you on again. Uh, I'll throw it over to Mike and then we'll let you have the final word. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Antonio, uh, I've learned so much today and uh, I'm looking forward to having you on the next podcast. I could do this all day. Um, and, and, uh, I would probably, you know, you know, forget about getting my kid off the bus, probably generally bad, <laughs> but, um, he's fine. He's, he's seven now. He, he can, he's, he can drive whatever. Um, but, um, no, honestly, uh, you know, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Uh, we're really excited to have you on and we're looking forward to having you on again. Um, for those of you uh, that don't know Antonio, Antonio, how can we find you? How can people look at what you've done? Feel free to share, uh, you know, any websites, social media handles. Please let us know how people can learn more about what you do because we want to support you because, man, you're blowing our minds right here. Thank you. Uh, so I have to say I'm highly incompetent with any technology. Starting from <laughs> phones. So I, but at the same time, I really want to share what I'm doing because I want to, I don't care about looking cool or not. I want to get people interested so they can bring more to the table and we can learn, learn together. So I try to put everything on my Instagram page, which is uh, Antonio underscore Squilante CSS, I think. Um, a lot of people get to that page and they wonder if it's me or not because most of the times I'm posting pictures of my dog because he's very cute. <laughs> My wife, because she's beautiful, or F1, because that's all I really care about in my free time. But it is my page, and it's me. And every now and again, especially like, for instance, now that we were doing um, 
a research project with Strong First. Uh, the return I had from posting videos of like people being interested, people pitching in valuable ideas for us to work together. That's what I like. I don't care if what I'm doing is cool or not. I care if people bring more value to it with their own experience and sharing their experience and expertise. So if anyone has any interest in anything I'm doing, uh, whether it is uh, force plates, we're doing some uh, studies on cooling, uh, VO2 max, anything that I'm researching on is on my Instagram page. So feel free to message me. I have no problem sharing my email, phone number, call me, text me, whatever. Come, come down to the lab and sit down with me. We can have some coffee. I'm down for that anytime. Road trip. I'm going on a road trip. Um, you know, we'll do, what we'll do is when we, when we get this podcast out, which will be, you know, not for a little bit, but we'll make sure that we link to all that information so people can find you. But, um, Antonio, thank you again. Uh, it was, uh, such an incredible conversation and educational experience today. Um, I look forward to the next time speaking with you. Uh, for those of you who've uh, been listening to the podcast, do us a big favor, uh, write us a positive review on whatever platform you've been listening. Uh, and we really, truly appreciate it. So we'll see you on the next one. Antonio, thanks again, Brett. I guess it was pretty good to see you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you all next time. Thanks a lot, everyone. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Antonio. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we're going to ask you for a favor. Please leave us some positive reviews. Be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks again for listening to the Minimum Effective Dose Podcast.